Well, I mentioned it earlier, but have you ever heard of the phrase or the title, people of the book? Uh, It's not a title that's used in the Bible. Although some people, you know how people think that certain things are in the Bible, but they aren't. Certain people think that that's one of those that's not. It, It has described Christianity for the last 1,400 years. Its source is pretty surprising, or at least it was for me. Muhammad was actually the first to invoke this title, people of the book, in his writing of the Quran. Uh, Much like the name Christian itself, people of the book was a derogatory term that is written in Islamic literature. The most notable of which is in Surah 3 in the 110th verse in which Muhammad laments Christians by saying this, if only the people of the book had faith, it would be better for them. Imagine that. One of the biggest issues that the Islamic faith has with Christianity is that Christians put so much trust and dependence upon the Bible that they read it as Christians having no faith. How much faith, if if it's all written down here, where does faith come in, is the argument. Obviously, I disagree with their assessment, but their claim is striking. And honestly, being a people of the book is a title that I actually love and embrace. The title really struck, really stuck in regions of Africa and Asia and earlier more fervent missionary endeavors. The nationals of these regions were awed at Christian missionaries and their slavish devotion to translating the Bible into different languages to the point where Christians were more commonly referred to as people of the book than they were as Christians. So you might not go by a person of Christian faith. You might go by somebody who is a person of the book in other regions. Could that be said today? Are Christians still people of the book? Translation efforts-wise, I believe so. Uh, Danny is going to touch on this, I'm sure, on Wednesday evening, so I don't want to get into his territory. We've talked about inspiration, preservation, and we will this Wednesday talk about the translation of the Bible. But let me give you some numbers here. Right now, the latest statistics from Wycliffe Global Alliance, which is leading the way in language translation of the Bible, they show that we have the complete Bible in 736 different languages. Praise God for that. But that is fewer than 10% of the world's 7,394 languages. 10% of the languages have the completed work of God in their hands. The numbers get a little more encouraging as you move down the graph to the New Testament translation or some scripture translated. You see the total tally there, 3,658 languages have some access to the Bible in their heart language, but that is still less than half of all known languages in the globe. Half of the languages in our world have the Bible, or have access to some scripture translated in their own heart language. If you follow the Wycliffe Bible translators, or if you've recently visited the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., which I hope every single Christian will try to make a special effort to do in their life, you know that the task before us in getting scripture into the hands of every people and every tribe is a difficult one. 
but it's one that many people are actively giving their life to. I'm positive that it's a biased opinion, but it's, a, it's based upon translation statistics that I've researched this week and study. I suppose that no other group in the world is given to having a text translated so widely as Christians. As a whole, we are people of the book. Such devotion to a text has been misunderstood throughout the years, though. Some wrongly think that the Bible, uh, that we hold to what they would call Bible worship or Biblio worship. Others believe that there is something mystical about even the pages of the book. Perhaps you've heard of King Menelik II. I don't know if you have or not. He was one of the last kings of Ethiopia. He died in 1913, so this is still fairly recent, at least within a century or so. Whenever he felt ill, Menelik II would eat a page out of the Bible. Eat it. He claimed it made him feel better, but it almost certain, certainly led to, uh, this strange practice led to his death. He had a stroke, and he directed his servants to then feed him, page by page, the books of first and second kings. In his thinking, he was a king. First and second kings is entitled kings. It must be for his benefit. Obviously, we don't worship a leather-bound book, nor do we hold that it contains any healing properties of its own. It's the text of Scripture which contains real, life-giving power. It was the Reformation hero, Martin Luther, who's been attributed as saying this beautiful statement, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet it runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. Isn't that good? But what about you? Would you consider yourself a person of the book? Recently, Dr. Robert Piccarelli was detailing the orthodox Christian belief concerning the inspiration of Scripture. And he, while, fo while focusing on the authority of the Bible over our life, he almost casually said, God has the right to run your life. God has the right to run your life. Hey, hey blue-blooded American, does that, does that sit well with you? I call the shots. No, God has the right to rule and run your life. Do you believe that? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this would be something worthy of your thinking about this week. We believe what the Bible says about itself in 2 Peter 1.21, that it is the very Word of God and it's been given to us. As such, a Christian is someone who then lives her life in accordance with God's Word. If the King of creation detailed how we ought to live, we'd better listen and then live likewise. So how about you, Christian? You know, it's one thing to claim that name, Christ follower. But are you really living out what it means to follow Jesus? Are you a person of the book? Is your family a family of the book? 
I'm not aiming at perfection when I say statements like that. I know that we all fail and fall and we can never live up to such a high standard, but we're living in a country in which 29% of people have never read even one line out of the Bible. Over half of our population only reads a little at most four times a year. I wonder what the stats would be among our own congregation if we took a poll and we were all honest outside of a classroom or a worship building, how often do we open the book? I could say a lot more about this, but the irony sits really heavy with me this morning that I've been talking a little bit or a lot about the book and we've yet to actually get to the book. So let me simply ask, church, are we people of the book? In all the details, in all of its details to us for life and godliness, do we treasure it and do we live by it? Ezra did. Ezra did. I think you'll learn today that Ezra was a man of the book. Have you thought it strange that over the last eight weeks, we have been in the book of Ezra, and not once have you been introduced to this individual who goes by this name. We've been here for eight weeks, and not once have we referenced him. We've read about Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Cyrus and Darius, but not once except when referencing the book's title, have you ever even heard the name Ezra mentioned. That's because Ezra writes as a historian for the first six chapters of the book. He writes about events that took place about 80 years before he even takes the world stage. But now, in chapter 7, he shifts. In fact, as you read chapter 7, at the very beginning, you actually see this shift in his writing where at first he's writing in third person, he's writing history, and then by the end of the chapter, if you were to skip down to the very last few verses of the chapter, he's writing in first person, almost as a journal entry. Who was this man, Ezra? Well, read the introduction again with me in the first few verses of the chapter. I'm going to muddle through some of these names again, and it won't be the same as I said it first time. After these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bucky, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. And he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him, speaking of Artaxerxes, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Simply put, Ezra was a priest of the Jews who was commissioned by this Persian king, Artaxerxes, to return to Jerusalem some 58 years after the building of the temple. Now why, you might ask, would a Persian king care one iota about a temple and a priest in some small rundown backwater of his kingdom? Why does Artaxerxes, this Persian king, care anything 
about the temple that's being built in Jerusalem hundreds of miles away from him. Well, I've talked about it over the last few weeks. The Persian kings preferred a much more menageristic approach to ruling their people. They, they seem to love having different cultures and religions all within their borders. So long as they paid tribute to the individual kings as their rulers, history tells us that they'd actually support the different people groups and the different worship of different gods so that they could pray to them on behalf of themselves. Basically, Persia would add peoples and their gods to their own pantheon of gods. Artaxerxes, he essentially wants to garner favor with this god of the Jews, and that's why he commissions Ezra to go to Jerusalem and minister in the temple. But it may even get a bit deeper than that. You see, you students of the Bible, you know that in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, where the Bible pieced together in a chronological format, there comes one of the most exciting accounts in all of Scripture. There's a bunch of raucous banquets that are held. There's a beauty pageant. There are stories of spies. There's a plot to wipe out the Jews from off the face of the earth. And finally, there is one very brave young woman who defies an entire empire. It's the story of Ezra, of Esther. She's the Jewess who was taken as queen of Persia to King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Well, Artaxerxes of Ezra 7.1 is very likely Xerxes' son. Artaxerxes may very well have been influenced by his stepmother Esther in sending out Ezra to Jerusalem for a revival of God's people. It's just another line in the story of God's providential watch care over his people. He is truly working all things together for our good. Ezra is the right man for this job. Verse 6 tells us that he was both a priest and a scribe, but not just any scribe. He relayed to us, it's relayed to us in the text that he was a skilled scribe. A, a better translation for that might not be skilled, it might be diligent scribe. His whole life was focused on the copying and conveying of Scripture for the people of God to use. I want you to think about this with me. Long before copy-paste print, which I'm so thankful for, long before the gentle whirring of electric word processors, or the report of manual typewriters, long before the movable type printing press, which revolutionized the world, scribes were copyists. Day and night, night and day, hours upon hours upon days upon days, they would sit in mass and they would write as the text of Scripture was dictated to them. That Ezra is a diligent scribe probably means that he was a quick scribe who made very few mistakes. He is the perfect person to go back to Jerusalem and help God's people in their newly built temple be reestablished in the word and the worship of God because he knows the Bible frontwards and backwards and then some. He has literally written every line in his lifetime. How did that come to be? 
Such a gifting rarely just pops up out of nowhere. Again, I encourage you to go to the boring parts of the Bible, the the lineages. There's a reason why I have read verses 1 through 5 a few times this morning already. Uh, I know most of us just skip by them and we don't even try, but there is something in here that gives us a lot of insight. Ezra's line can be traced, or his lineage can be traced, all the way back to Aaron, who is the first high priest of the Jews. These verses are very likely not detailed, not a detailed family tree, but we have here enough to understand that this is Ezra's birthright to minister the word to God's people. He was literally born to do this. But his love and his dedication for God's word, it goes deeper still. You thought it was good that you can see that he is related to Aaron, great, 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 great grandfather Aaron? Well, tucked within the listing of names in these first few verses, you'll come across a name, Hilkiah. Hilkiah. If you count out the generations between Hilkiah and Ezra, you'll find that Hilkiah is Ezra's great-grandfather. Hilkiah is, not the, uh, Hilkiah is not the story of Scripture that we all know, but we all should know it. He's very likely not any of the kids' favorite Bible characters. You know how we ask kids who they like, who's, their favorite Bible, who's your favorite Bible hero? And they'll say Noah, and they'll say Samson, and they'll say David, because they built an ark, they had superhuman strength, they killed a giant. That's awesome. Well, what did Hilkiah do? None of those things. Not even close. His story comes to us in 2 Kings chapter 22. You don't have to turn there, but it's a very dark time in Judah. There have been a couple of generations of very evil kings, and they have made all of Judah forget about serving God. God's people forget God's word. In fact, they lost it. They didn't know where it was. But then we're introduced to a boy named Josiah. Josiah comes to power. He was an eight-year-old king. How many of you are eight years old? Go and raise your hand real fast. Anybody? Do we have no eight-year-olds in our church this morning? I see one up there, one of the Hicks boys. Can you imagine? Oh, can you imagine? Megan, can you imagine an eight-year-old ruling the country? Obviously, there were things at play. I'm sure there were many ministers and helpers and stuff like that. But Josiah ruled as best as he could for over a decade. But there was a problem. Have you ever tried to play a game, but you couldn't find the instructions? You know, uh, you open up the card game or the board game and you pull open the box and somebody has lost the instructions. The directions are nowhere to be found. You want to play this game, but you have no idea how to play the game. Well, God's people had lost the law of the Lord. Seriously, misplaced it. Didn't know where it was. They had seriously lost their Bibles or their Old Testament Scripture. They didn't know what was right and what was wrong because of that. 
It seems like young Josiah did his best to do what was right, but he didn't have the instructions from God's word to help him. He had no idea what was right and what was wrong outside of his own personal conscience. Then Hilkiah steps in on the scene. He was the high priest at the time, and he had excitedly sent word to King Josiah that he had found the book of the law. In 2 Kings 22.10, Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Verse 11, Now it happened when King Josiah heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Just a mere reading of the word of God revealed that they had not been obeying God's law. As hard as they had tried to do what was right, they didn't know what right was. And so when they meet up with what righteousness is, the King Josiah rips his royal robes in lament. Verse 12, Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. The next dozen or several dozen verses of 2 Kings 22 and 23 detail all of the amazing changes that Judah saw during this revival under Josiah once he had been given the law of God which Hilkiah had found. Simply put, Hilkiah saw firsthand the power of God's word in God's people's hands. And he told his son about it. Who told his son about it? Who told his son about it? You see, Ezra experienced a family living in accordance with God's word long before he was even born. Time out. I don't say this merely because my parents are in attendance this morning. Their visit was a last minute, unplanned, uh, up until early last week thing. But I am a living testament to the power of God's word in a family's life. I really don't want to embarrass my parents with all the details, but I would just simply say, Dads and moms, grandparents, and even great-grandparents, because I know that we have a few in here, your relationship with the Word of God will directly affect future generations. Some of you are like me, and you experience that, and we probably don't even know all the blessings that we have because we take it for granted. Some of you are first-generation Christians And man, you wish you had it. There's a lot of scars. I am eating spiritual fruit from trees that were planted by my grandparents. And very likely by my great-grandparents, although I never met them. Never underestimate your love and adherence to the Word of God. 
It affects more than you. Generations are at play here. How many of us have finally found ourselves in the faith because of a faithful mom who taught us scripture? How many of us had a dad who prayed with us? How many of us had a grandparent who lived out practical Christianity before our very eyes? I'm convinced that Ezra steps on the scene of this chapter as a direct result of a faithful great-grandpa who found the book of the law and lived by it. I feel so akin to Ezra in that because he saw the change of scripture made in his family. He then in turn gave his life wholly and completely to verse 10. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Confession time. I was casually reading my Bible one day a few months ago when I ran across this as a cross-reference to another verse that I was reading. I wasn't even in Ezra. I just saw it as a cross-reference to Ezra 7.10. So I flipped over and read it. I am positive that I have read through the book of Ezra, but apparently not as diligently as I ought because I had never read verse 10 seriously. Verse 10, like so many other passages in God's Word, it got under my skin, it got in my heart. As Jeremiah would say, it set a fire in my bones. And Ezra 7.10 is the main reason why I began preaching through this book of the Bible a couple of months ago that some of you have told me that you thought I was crazy for trying to preach through Ezra. I want to be like Ezra. I want us to be like Ezra. He had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach others. Well, I've got some questions in this one small verse. What exactly is involved in preparing your heart to seek the law of the Lord? Anybody want to tackle that one? How does one prepare your heart to open the Bible? We talk a lot about open the Bible and read, but we talk very little about actually preparing our hearts to open the Bible and read. Doesn't this language seem strange to you? It did to me. What's the meaning? What's even more troubling is that there is no explicit answer. I haven't found, I haven't come across one book, one commentary that gives this is exactly what it means in the original language. But here's my best effort at answering through my study this week. I believe that preparing your heart to seek the law of God has to do with how you approach Scripture. Christian, I want you to think of the last time that you came up against a social or family issue and you went to the Bible to see what it said about it on a particular topic. More than likely, all of our cards on the table, you open God's Word with some preconceived notions. Be honest. We might not ever verbalize it this way, but I believe we usually open our Bibles to confirm what we thought already. 
rather than hearing what God actually has in the text. Yeah, I, th- I thought that's what the Bible said. I knew I was right. Friend, that is dangerous. Oh, so dangerous. Too often we read the Bible as Westerners or Americans or free will Baptists or Arminians or dispensationalists or cessationalists or whatever is. We read certain verses and then we close our Bibles and we say that arrogant, yep, that's pretty much what I thought. I believe that Ezra's preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord meant that he left all that stuff outside. I am nothing but someone who is seeking the truth in God's word. He opened the law and he said, whatever you say, God, that's what I believe. We don't do that. We don't do that by a long shot. We come across a particularly difficult passage of scripture and think about all the mental gymnastics that we have to do to try to make God's word fit within our preconceived notion. Well, it can't mean what it actually says in the text. It must mean something different. No, what if it actually means what it says? We read stuff about the husband and the wife relationship and we say, yeah, but that can't actually be what the Bible says. We add some, so many provisos to what scripture says about how we ought to honor those in authority and pray for them, that ultimately we just need to come clean and we have rewritten the Bible as the me SV and the king me version. You like that? We have put ourselves on the front cover saying, I know how better to believe than what God's word says. All of us. Christian, God has every right to rule your life. What he details in his word about life and godliness, be it human sexuality, interpersonal dealings, church discipline, holiness, family, government, sanctity of life, or whatever the hot topic you want to add, what he has written is what you ought to believe on the given topic. Have you prepared your heart to seek the truth of God's law? Or have you replaced the authority of God with mere public or personal opinion? Ezra will do some very interruptive things in the following chapters. Some, I'll be honest with you, I am still working through and questioning some of them. Some of the laws that he implements are troublesome in many ways. But for every single one, he has chapter and verse for why he believes it ought to be done so. Do you? Or do you merely relegate to, well, I just feel in my heart. Or I just think that God No, 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 friend, what does the word of God say? You see the progression here, don't you? He he sought the law of the Lord to do it, verse 7 says. It's important to know the Bible. Hear me on that. 
We spend so much of our time here at the church in classes and clubs and studies and sermons doing just that. It's important to know your Bible, but it is more important to live the Bible. Know your Bible, but more than that, live your Bible. I mean that, but I think I could... I think that could be too much of a false dichotomy. You cannot live the Bible or the truths of the Bible unless you know the Bible. So seek to know so that you can live. That's exactly what Ezra does. This isn't just mindless information that he can just rattle off whenever somebody says, here's a reference of Scripture, what's it say? And he, this is what it is. No, he learns it. He knows God's Word so that he can live God's word. Think about the teachings of Jesus in this regard. You know, not once does Jesus end a sermon or a parable by saying, happy are you if you memorize this. Not once. Happy are you if you can duplicate. No. Never does he say, blessed are those who can quote these eight pithy sayings in the Beatitudes. No. It's happy are you if you do these things. Blessed are those who actually hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is not some mere thought experiment. This is real life. The study, memorization, and meditation of Scripture is so very important. I cannot stress it enough. But if you do not live it, those memory verses will do you no good. Hear that. Information to write down on a test that will never happen one day. No knowledge gets you to glory. Obedient faith does. So live it. Finally, after having sought the law of God and done it, out of an overflow of what God has done and is doing in his heart, what does Ezra do next? He prepares to teach its statutes and its ordinances to others. Get that order down. He doesn't teach others without studying it and living it out himself. Sometimes we mess that up, don't we? Well, let me tell you what you ought to do. Buddy, you better live it first before you tell one person what they ought to do. Get that order down. Seek it to do it so that you can teach others. He practices what he preaches. And then it says, it's almost, it's written in such a way that it's like he can't help himself. It is just bubbling up in his life. You've got to hear what I just learned about in the law of God so that he can teach others. Hear me well on this. Everyone in here right now, every single person, sitting in a pew, standing as a trustee in the hallway, every single person has someone in their life that you can teach. Every single one. You might be in first grade. You didn't want to raise your hand when I asked for all eight-year-olds to, to raise your hand. But you have someone that the Lord has placed in your life to teach about him. It might be your own little brother or sister. I'm the youngest in the family. Take it from me. I am the beneficiary. 
I have been blessed by some really good and really long conversations about Jesus with my brother and my sister who taught me. It might be a classmate. It might even be your own parents, although I'll let them deal with that. I do think that the Lord has set up human beings to procreate in families in such a way so that I as a father will learn more about my heavenly father by actually having children. I've learned a lot about the Lord in the past 11 years of my life. He's teaching me daily. Everyone has someone whom they can invest and teach the law of the Lord. You say, Corey, you, you don't know my situation. I live alone. You would say it, I wouldn't say it of you. I'm past my prime. I can't stand in front of a classroom. I have very few visitors. I'm only able to attend church meetings whenever the sun is up because I'm a little nervous at nighttime. Hear me. Every single one of us without exception, has someone who needs to be taught the law of the Lord through us. I want us to be Ezra's from the preparation to the preaching and everything in between. But the truth of the matter is that none of us will ever live out verse 10 to its fullest. Isn't that disheartening? You could try as you might to seek the law of the Lord with all your might so that you could do it, so that you could teach others. But guess what? At some point in your life, you're going to lead someone astray. Your best intentions are to lead them in the way of the Lord, but you're going to give them bad opinion or wrong information in some way. At some point in your life, you're going to know what's right, but you're not going to do what's right. At some point in your life, you're going to find, I really want to do my own thing. I want to seek after my own heart and not after the heart of God. Every single one of us is going to fall miserably. We have fallen miserably from what's expected of us in verse 10. And that is what makes the person of Jesus of Nazareth such a winsome figure in history. He did. He lived it out to a T. Like Ezra, he was a high priest. But he was the high priest. Truly God, truly man, he still prepared his heart. He lived as a carpenter for 30 years before actually standing up and teaching. He was able to do, to live by every single one of the laws that he, in his own heart, had derived for mankind to live by. And he taught with authority the very word of God, practicing what he preached at every turn. And when we, who had broken the law irreparably, he stepped into our lives, he does more than what any high priest had ever done. They had slain animal after animal as a sign and a shadow of forgiveness of sins, but only Jesus Christ, the high priest, the great high priest, laid down his own life for us, taking upon himself our sin, our lawlessness, and giving us his righteousness so that we might be able to seek him and live for him. He is the better Ezra in the scripture. He was the great high priest, but he was a scribe as well. It's interesting. I had never seen this in this way of thinking, but Jesus himself is a scribe dedicating to the writing of his word. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 8. 
Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't know the text, that's fine. It'll be on the screen. In a manner of speaking, this ultimate scribe, the man Christ Jesus, wrote his law not on pages, not even in stone, but the author of Hebrews tells us that he has written it upon our hearts. Read Hebrews 8.10 where the Lord is testifying. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Aren't you thankful for the forgetfulness of Jesus? The very law of God written upon our hearts on our own consciousness, it betrays ourselves here this morning. We know. You might wash over it. You might try to put other terms to it, but we all know I am faulty and fallen. I am a sinner. I am a rebel at heart. Yet He, the Creator of the law, offers us a clean and clear rap sheet. He remembers our sin no more. We're not just people of the book, what other people might kind of slightingly call us. Here in verse 12 of Hebrews 8, he calls us the people of God. Do you know him? moved heaven and earth to get to you, to die for you, to redeem you, to resurrect for you, to stand before the righteous judge pleading the case of the cross for you. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.